We turn in God's inspired, authoritative word this morning to Malachi chapter 3. So the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom ye seek, shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he shall purify the sons of Levi, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers, ye are gone away from mine ordinances and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. But ye said, Wherein shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet ye have robbed me. But ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? In tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. And all nations shall call you blessed, for ye shall be a delightsome land, saith the Lord of hosts. Your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, What have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, It is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy? Yea, they that work wickedness are set up, 
Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it, and a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and that thought upon his name, and they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. The text to which I call your attention this morning is Malachi 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord. And you notice the name Lord is all capital letters. So that is Jehovah, for I am Jehovah, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the opening verses of Malachi 3, the prophet was given to prophesy of the coming of the messenger of the covenant the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be another messenger sent to prepare the way before him, the reference being to John the Baptist. But the focus of the text was upon the fact that the messenger of the covenant would come to execute judgment. Though that had been prophesied repeatedly, Though that had even been the theme of the prophecy of Isaiah, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness, the children of Israel as a whole were no longer looking for such a Messiah. Christ shall come and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. That refiner's fire shall purify the sons of Levi and them only. All others it shall consume. But what a blessing that he shall purify any. We are loaded with impurities, covered with dross, as it were, and the church, those sons of Levi in Malachi's day, could hardly be seen. And judgment shall begin at the house of God. Notice verse 5. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers. And the reference there is to those who defile holy marriage by putting away their spouses. And against false swearers 
those who claim to be the children of Abraham, those who confess their faith and put on a pious mask but live ungodly. And against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from, the, from his right, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. How then shall we be saved? What can we do to escape that judgment? We heard from verse 3 that the messenger of the covenant, that promised Savior, shall purify the sons of Levi. That alone is our salvation. But what is our confidence? That brings us to today's text. So beautiful, so powerful in establishing the wonder of God's grace. The sons of Levi are spoken of by Malachi as the representatives of that holy nation, the remnant, according to the election of grace, who looked by faith upon the coming Savior. That salvation for the sons of Levi is certain because of the immutability, the unchangeableness of the faithful Jehovah in maintaining his covenant. That covenant, which would be confirmed by the precious blood of God's only begotten Son, cannot be dissolved. It is an everlasting covenant established by God who has revealed himself by his name as unchangeably faithful, Yahweh, Jehovah. I call your attention to Malachi 3, verse 6, under the theme, the church's certain preservation. We see, first of all, a developing decay. Secondly, an unchangeable Savior, and finally, a certain preservation. This text rises against the dark background of developing decay that is our own observation and experience. Time and change sweeps us along, as it were. We each have our beginning formed by God in the womb of our mother, known by him from eternity, given our own particular place in time. We don't choose. We're given our place in a particular family. We don't take our own place We're given our place in the midst of his church. We don't select the trials that we face, nor the measure of them. We grow as children. We develop, we grow in our knowledge and understanding. If it is God's will, we marry, or we live in single life surrounded by our church family. Some of us have children 
and take up the calling God gives us to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We teach them. We discipline them. We watch them grow. But all these things are covered by the stark reality that we fade and decay like the flower in the wind. Our childhood is quickly replaced by the responsibilities of adulthood. The strength of youth is soon overcome by the effects of change that come to expression in old age. And that vibrancy of life that we observe all around us in creation, given for our enjoyment, is set aside by the reality that death also embraces the whole creation. The whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now, as as Romans 8 verse 22 tells us. And our own lives are swept away by the power of death. Not only so, but that developing decay is seen in the church. And that reality is on the foreground in this text. The seeming stability of the moment is soon overtaken by instability. The church is shaken with strife. The origin of that change in strife might vary, but it all comes down to sin. The strength of the church, her life in Christ and her love for Christ and his truth her gratitude to the God of her salvation fades as she loses her first love to refer to the description of the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And that was just a few decades after her establishment. But in Malachi's day, that decay had developed to such a degree that the church as a whole had become apostate. The priests themselves had led God's people astray even into all manner of sin. Read the prophecy of Malachi. Do that this afternoon and see the state of affairs that Malachi was sent by God to confront. You see the corruption of worship, again with the priests leading the way and corrupting the covenant. You see the people rejecting God's word, having actively embraced those sins which profaned the holiness of God. They profess to be the people of God, even knowing intellectually all the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law as as they pointed to the coming Messiah. But they held God's truth in contempt, even defiling marriage. That, That most concrete earthly picture of God's everlasting covenant of grace 
instead of showing that their knowledge of the covenant truly meant something, instead of revealing faith in the Messiah who would come as the messenger of the covenant, they treacherously, they dealt treacherously with their spouses, showing that Christ meant nothing to them. Oh, they, they could cover the altar with their tears. But they were not tears of true repentance. They were tears of self-pity for the chastisements of God that fell upon them. And that was evident because their sins continued and developed. There was no turning from sin in the heartfelt sorrow of true repentance before God, the Holy and Righteous One. And if you take into account the history that follows the prophecy of Malachi, the church enters into a period of some 400 years of darkness in the decay of sin and death. Dreadful darkness that would only be broken by the coming of the Son of God into our flesh to save us. That developing decay, that departure from God's word, is a sad characteristic of the church throughout history. There's a reason Malachi's prophecy was preserved for us today. Just study the history of the church during the life of Moses, for example. What challenges Moses faced in leading the children of Israel? The truth became dreadfully clear. The truth that the Apostle Paul would later express in Romans 9, verse 6, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And as Moses faced the constant pressures of developing decay, of those who rebelled against his authority as representative of Christ, he bore patiently with the children of God for the sake of the remnant and laying hold of the immutable promises of God. Time after time he bore the verbal assaults of the children of Israel pleading to God on behalf of them. Moses stood as a type of our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. But so incessant was the sin, so wretched the departure from God's truth, Moses finally broke. And he showed that he failed as the type of Christ, being consumed by anger, he departed from the way in which God called him to deal with his people 
and said, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock? And in anger, Moses struck the rock, referring to the whole church as rebels. He forgot the remnant. And Moses had to bear the consequences of his sin. He could no longer serve the children of Israel, could not even enter the promised land which was right in front of him. For Christ's sake, in whom Moses stood by faith, God took him to heaven, the true promised land, and showed that only with our eyes upon Christ, Christ also laboring with the sons of Levi as a refiner's fire, are we his people saved. And as we consider Malachi, in comparison to the church today, we ought not be surprised to see the same decay pressing its way through the church at the end of the New Testament age. That decay even makes its way into our own churches as our first love wanes and we lose sight of Christ's glory as the one sent by Jehovah to save his church. If that Holy One of Israel is set aside, if the focus turns to ourselves, it should be no surprise that the chastisements of God weigh heavily upon us as decay makes its way more and more into the church's doctrine, but more especially into our lives as a lackadaisical godlessness comes to expression in ungodly living a clear demonstration of a rejection of God's truth? The true church, the sons of Levi, cannot be unaffected by God's truth. It will come to expression in their lives. The fruits of a true faith are seen in godliness in the gratitude to God expressed by lives of obedience to his word. The corruption of worship by simply going through the motions, the defilement of marriage, the prevalent acceptance of the world and her idolatry and sins in our own lives makes clear that the word of God through Malachi is just as necessary today as it was for the people of God in Malachi's day. But the text also reveals that amidst that developing decay, there's an astounding wonder. The sons of Jacob are not consumed. And the picture is that of a bottle of water being poured out but never emptied. 
You realize when you have a bottle of water, if you turn it upside down, it, it very quickly empties. The water leaves the bottle and is consumed by the ground. But the sons of Jacob are not consumed. We saw the same kind of a figure in, in reading the first four verses of this chapter. The refiner's fire burns and purifies. But it doesn't consume the bar of gold or silver that is being purified. Look at the dark history of the Old Testament church. And even when the church, those people of Israel, were under the most severe judgments and chastisements of God, they were never destroyed. Oh, multitudes perished, but the church was not consumed. Let us understand the reference to the sons of Jacob is not to the natural sons of Jacob. Again, if we look at the history of the natural sons of Jacob, many were consumed. Repeatedly in the history of the Old Testament, God destroyed under his just judgment multitudes among the Israelites who had rejected his covenant and profaned his holy name. So if we were to interpret those sons of Jacob as the natural children of Jacob, we couldn't possibly understand this text. The reference in harmony with Scripture is to the spiritual children of Jacob. They are his chosen people in church, redeemed even by promise in the precious blood of God's dear Son. They are those called by God to be his covenant people, his church in the midst of this world. And that's confirmed in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men but of God. How is it that they are not consumed? So much sin. Yes, the sins of the reprobate rubbed off on God's people, as it were. And the sinful natures of the sons of Jacob came to expression repeatedly in rebellion against God. They were influenced by error, by self-seeking, by idolatry. They showed repeatedly that there was no reason in themselves for which they should be saved. How then is it that through the entire Old Testament church and even until now at the end of the New Testament age we see that the sons of Jacob are not consumed for here's the reason for I am Jehovah I change not 
Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We have an unchangeable Savior. Our God is he whose name is Yahweh, Jehovah, the unchangeably faithful covenant God. Over against the universal unrest that characterizes the whole creation as well as the church, stands one who alone is above time, the creator of time. The crushing weight of time never weighs him down because time is only his servant. He is from everlasting to everlasting the same. It's hard for us to understand, boys and girls, but God always was and always shall be. He was never young and he never gets old. He is always the eternal, all-powerful, only wise, unchangeable God of our salvation, the rock. From his heart comes an ever-flowing, never-changing fountain of pure love. We stand before all the choices that we must make in life, and we have to weigh matters and deliberate and decide. And we're called to do that in the light of God's word, But God never has to deliberate. He never has to weigh the outcome of certain actions. Never has to slow down or hesitate over what he's about to do. His will and good pleasure is as eternal as he is. As perfect as he is. As unchangeable as he is. But the focus of the text is on the immutability, the unchangeableness of the glorious God in relationship to his people, the sons of Jacob. What does it mean to us that God is unchangeable? The name Jehovah, let us remember, is the name by which God reveals himself in his covenant relationship with his people. When he says here, I am Jehovah, he reveals that his relationship to his people is an unbreakable relationship of deepest love. He looks upon them as those whom he has formed unto himself and those upon whom he has bestowed his love as as their everlasting friend, sovereign, their savior. All the change in our lives, therefore, all the developing decay, which would seem to threaten our very existence, our lives, does not sweep us 
out of his everlasting arms which hold us. His word in Deuteronomy 32, verse 27, comes to us also in the words of Malachi 3, verse 6. The eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee, and shall say, destroy them. Satan is zealous in his attempts to destroy the church, also our churches. He would lead us in ways of sin, in paths of false doctrine. He would send the flames of worldliness into our thoughts and lives in his attempt to consume us. He would attempt to destroy our perspective so that we are so affected by our carnal emotions that we make decisions contrary to the well-being of Christ's church and we tear the church to pieces with mouths set on fire of hell. But because of the immutability of him who so loved his church that he gave himself for her and promised never to leave nor forsake her, he says, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. The unchangeableness of Jehovah is the key to the certain preservation of the church and of you and me as members of the body of Christ. Again, think of the circumstances in which Malachi preached. The church appeared to be lost. It wasn't a matter of being able to find another church with that, that faithfully maintained the marks of a true church. The church was inseparably connected with Israel, with the nation established by God, with the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. There was no other place to go. And the priesthood was was apostate. Worship practices had been entirely polluted, made contemptible before God so that he cursed them as we read in chapter 2, verse 1. The wickedness among those who called themselves the people of God, was so prevalent, they didn't distinguish themselves at all from the children of the strange gods and the nations all around them. The antithesis was lost. They dealt treacherously even in marriage, that precious gift of God. How is it then that there could be any hope for change, for correction, for repentance. How could this people, the nation of Israel, the remnant of Israel, be spared? Be spared 
what had already fallen upon the ten tribes of Israel, who by this time were no longer scattered to the wind, as it were, under the just judgment of God. Will it depend upon their change? Their love? Their faithfulness? How could it be when our love and faithfulness is always in flux, always faltering, always affected by the sinfulness of our natures? The certain preservation of the church rests upon the unchangeable faithfulness of him who alone is unchanging, Jehovah God. The eternal love by which he predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, Ephesians 1 verse 5, carries along the church like an ever-rolling stream. Did so in Malachi's day. Even when the life of the church appeared hopelessly lost, it did so by the promise of the messenger of the covenant, our Lord Jesus Christ. That same stream of Jehovah's love his unchangeable faithfulness to his covenant is seen when that Son of God is born in our flesh, sent to save his people from their sins. And especially when the breadth and depth of that love is seen when God commended his love toward us in that While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, verse 8. He died bearing our sins, but was not consumed. It is the unchangeable faithfulness of Jehovah that has embraced us and drawn us unto him, that has testified to us I will never leave you nor forsake you. That has assured us that the gates of hell shall not prevail against us and against our Christ. For I am the Lord, Jehovah. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. So the text speaks of a certain preservation. And this is a powerful reminder for us, too. We do well to remember that the certain preservation proclaimed in this text is for Christ's church, the sons of Jacob. Esau is consumed. Those not united to Christ by a true faith are consumed. The curse of the Lord is in the house of the wicked, but he blesseth the habitation of the just. Proverbs 3, verse 33. Only in Christ 
are we the objects of God's love. Only in Christ are we saved. The certain preservation revealed in this text is particular. Let's also understand the certain preservation revealed here is for Christ's elect church and the members of that church, not for a particular denomination. There have been countless denominations throughout history, including from the time of the Reformation, that have become thoroughly apostate and from which Christ has withdrawn his candlestick. And many of those departures began, as we saw in the church at Ephesus from Revelation 2, with the loss of her first love. There is developing decay. The landscape is littered with the remnants of Reformed denominations as well. Let us take heed. Certainly, the Lord has chastened us as Protestant Reformed churches. Satan is also assaulting us from every side. We must examine ourselves and repent of any departures from God's truth also as that truth of God's word touches our own lives personally and as families. We only demonstrate pride if we say, as did the people to Malachi, Wherein have we wearied God? We may not take consolation in not being as bad as other churches around us. God gives us a calling. He gives elders a calling to make sure that the truth of God's word in our Reformed confessions is being faithfully proclaimed in our pulpits and not coming under attack in our pews and not coming under attack by our teaching and writing. He gives each of us the calling to contend for the faith once delivered unto the saints, we have to take seriously that calling for the glory of God's name and the welfare of his church. We also have to do that in the proper way. God is a God of order, not of chaos. We may not have every man doing what is right in his own eyes. We may not have our church order misinterpreted in such a way 
that it allows every man to do what is right in his own eyes in confronting sin in the church. That demonstrates not a desire to see correction and reconciliation, as must always be our calling in dealing with any who are wayward. That works division as much as does doctrinal error and cannot have God's blessing. Reconciliation, after all, is the heart of the gospel. What does the future hold for our churches? We don't have the answer to that question, do we? God has given us almost a hundred years. We don't know what the future holds. We know God's calling, inescapable calling to be faithful. It was a calling grossly neglected in Israel until it was soundly rejected. We certainly are not there as a denomination, but let's not make excuses. Let's examine ourselves carefully. Let's guard our tongues. Let's repent for our error. Let us plead that God leads us and preserves us in his truth. let us not despair. The good shepherd never forsakes his flock. He works refining, purifying, even through that painful process. He works to see, to give us to see that salvation is entirely of him and of his powerful and irresistible grace, the work of the faithful, unchangeable covenant God. He will give his glory to none other. He preserves us in such a way that we persevere. We mustn't forget the connection to the opening verses of Malachi 3, We saw in verse 3 that the purpose of his work as the purifier of the sons of Levi is that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. As a result of that purifying, as the fruit of Christ's refining work, we offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness, to the praise of the glory of his grace. It's a righteousness that is ours only through the work of the mediator of the covenant. We do offer unto the Lord an offering. We enter into the joy of our salvation, bearing the fruits of faith, The messenger of the covenant works salvation that is seen. 
that is experienced, that is entered into by those who are purified in the crucible of his perfect work on the cross. But we claim nothing as our own. We pollute everything we touch. And when he gives us to see that we deserve to be consumed, guilty of sins, all of which are offensive to the perfectly holy God and constantly affected by that foul fountain of our own sinful heart and mind and the pride that would consume us, he leads us to the cross. He would have us contemplate his everlasting and unchangeable love, his faithfulness to his promise, his immutable purpose to save us and to purify us until receiving us into the perfection of his covenant fellowship world without end. What a blessed Savior. Let's trust in him, shall we? Amen. Our gracious Heavenly Father, consciousness of our sinfulness we lay hold of thy word and the righteousness of the mediator of the covenant who came to save us from our sins and we thank thee that we belong to thee whose name is Jehovah to thee who changes not. Therefore, we have the confidence of the church's certain preservation for Jesus' sake. Amen.